I want to take a moment uh, while Team Uganda is getting off the stage. And probably some of you heard, maybe most of you heard, if you've been following the news, this was actually national news. On Tuesday, um, many of the pastors and myself were down at a meeting at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, and Pastor Greg Laurie was supposed to speak at that meeting. And he called Pastor Brian very early in the morning and said uh, he would be unable to make it. And the reason uh, was one of his pastors, Pastor uh, Jared Wilson, uh, had taken his own life. Now the reason that this is more painful is because Jared had a ministry ministering to people who were struggling with mental illness. And I think it behooves us as the church to remind ourselves that our bodies are flesh. Our mind is flesh. Your mind is a computer that is made up of cellular systems um, that is capable of reacting like all the rest of your flesh and that is your flesh is not yet fully uh, redeemed. It, it's still broken. It's still affected by the curse. And no more than we would speak ill of someone whose life is taken by heart disease should we speak ill of those who struggle with mental illness. And I think it's time for the church to wake up to the fact that not everything has simple answers. We have for many, many, many years heard two sides of this issue and one of them is that all mental illness is just simply a failure to be led by the spirit. That is hogwash. That is not true. And that is a legalistic, completely unspiritual view because there are people who love the Lord Jesus who suffer greatly with mental illness. Can mental illness be conquered by the Spirit of God? Absolutely. And that is ultimately the answer. But don't make the mistake of pretending that everyone who says they have mental illness or maybe everyone who struggles with that in your life is just simply not spiritual. And to that end, Rick and Kay Warren are joining with Pastor Greg, and in fact, we surrendered our normal program time tonight for Pastor Greg to deliver a message with Rick and Kay Warren because Rick and Kay know all too well the pain of this because their son also took his life. So I beg you, as your pastor, be gentle, be kind, be respectful. Do not be judgmental about people who are struggling. Maybe there is some source of spiritual oppression that's going on in some believer's life. And maybe they have a serious physiological problem that has resulted in their mind not working as it should. Our, ours is not to judge that. 
We have doctors to do that and you should be praying for those in the medical field, especially those in psychiatry and those in psychology that have to deal with the tragedy that exists in our country that is mental illness. We as the church have the opportunity to lift arms. We as the church have the opportunity to pray for those who are suffering. We as the church have the opportunity to be a part of the solution, but we should not ever be part of the problem. And so I beg you, by the mercies of God, to consider those who are weak among you and you who are strong, lift them up and pray for them so that maybe we won't ever hear of this again. But if we do, please don't be one of those people that says, well, that person certainly didn't know the Lord. I do not know of a more unkind thing and an unloving thing than you can say than something like that. And that is not of the Lord Jesus. Be gentle and be kind. Be loving. For you never, you never know what someone else is going through and how the enemy might sneak into their minds to convince them that the only way out is something that we can't fathom. Would you join me? Let's pray for Greg and for Rick and Kay as they are speaking right now. Father, we ask you by the power of the Spirit to use this incredible tragedy Lord, there is a wife and two children, Lord, that are suffering tonight beyond what we know. And we pray that you would be the God of all comfort to them. And we pray those that would be so foolish as to speak without thinking first would be silenced. And God, we ask for Pastor Greg tonight, his heart is wrenched and broken. He's, he's lost one of his own sons already. And Lord, now to have one of his staff, a man well respected for the work he's done to help people struggling with this very thing. God of grace, God of mercy, fall upon them tonight. And as they share, we pray that that message that's delivered would break through somebody's troubled heart, their troubled mind, or that it would strike a chord. And perhaps if you could simply save one tonight, Lord, one family from this pain, or one doctor from hearing the words they never want to hear, or one psychiatrist or psychologist would be spared Lord, from having to comfort a family that's lost a loved one. God, use this tragedy for your glory somehow. We trust, we rest in you. We ask you now to use your word to speak into our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Lessons in Leadership, Part 2. We're going to tackle the whole chapter. It's a long chapter. But 
the context of it and the content of it allow us to take it as a narrative. And so I don't believe we'll have any problem getting through this chapter tonight in our remaining time. But Paul as a apostle and Paul as a leader in the early church, Paul as a pastor is teaching us some very important lessons in this chapter about what it really means to be a leader. And in this case, very specifically, a pastoral leader. Someone that you could and should and would look to. And so he begins by reminding us of those who preach another Jesus, who preach another gospel, who have a different message. And I want to remind you that the church's responsibility is to preach Christ and him crucified for the remission of sin. It is to see those who do not know the Lord come to know the Lord. It is for the purpose of the gospel that the entirety of the New Testament really was authored in the first place. The New Testament is a story of the good news that went forth, brought to fruition by the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And so a leader is responsible for preaching the gospel. That is my calling. That, that is what every pastor should be about. Sometimes I get asked, well, what does a pastor do? A, a pastor is supposed to be busy about our father's business. And our father's business is seeking and saving those who are lost. Beyond that, a pastor's job is to build up the church, to teach the word, to preach what it means to live a gospel life. And so as we begin with verse 1, we see the Apostle Paul drawing a line in the sand. And he's saying, look, it's not about my education. It's not about my speech. It isn't about where I got my degree or did not get my degree. It is not about those things. It is about preaching Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. He says, look, I, I want to try and lighten this as much as I can. I, I want to speak to you a little bit rhetorically. I want to speak to you a little sarcastically. I, I want to speak to you in a way that you'll get it. I don't want this to be so serious that you miss the message. But would you hear me out here? For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband. If you look at the message of the New Testament, one of the marvelous titles for us as the church is the bride of Christ. Amen? So in that sense, the entire church, every last believer is betrothed to exactly one husband and his name is Jesus. Amen? We don't have different husbands. We're not waiting for some other ruler. There isn't another gospel. There's one Christ. There is one bride. 
and there is one bridegroom. And we as the church are all betrothed to the same husband. That I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. And so he begins to say, look, I I don't want to see you sullied. I don't want to see you chasing after somebody else. I don't want you to almost get to the altar. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Would you please underline that? That your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The gospel is explicitly simple. It is not complex. It's not religious in any way, shape, or form. It is wholly relational. And it is that gospel that we have the responsibility of reminding ourselves we are betrothed to the one who bore that gospel on his own back. Who paid for our lives with his own blood. And so Paul says, I don't want you to miss this. Because it's really easy to get caught up in religion. It's really easy to get caught up in works. It is really easy to get caught up in legalism. It's easy to get caught up in being judgmental. It is easy to get caught up in being divisive. It is easy to get caught up in all kinds of things for the sake of religion. And so Paul reminds us And I remind you, don't let your mind be corrupted, drawn away from, polluted, if you will, is another good word here for the Greek word. Don't let your mind be polluted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes, if there's someone else who comes with another message and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. If you allow your mind to be corrupted by something other than the simplicity of the gospel, then you are setting yourself up to find another path to God. To listen to another spirit, to to hear some kind of other way, some other truth, some other life. And we could all sit here and name a few cults to teach that very thing. Jehovah's Witnesses being one. Mormonism being another. That's another gospel. It's another Jesus. It is not God's only son. It's one of God's many sons. The simplicity of the gospel is God has exactly one son. That one son was sent from heaven to earth by God the Father for the express purpose of dying on Calvary's cross, shedding his blood because he is perfect God and man. He died in my place. In dying in my place and shedding his blood, he paid the price for my sin. And if I will believe in him, I shall be saved. Amen? 
That's the gospel. That's the simple gospel. And if it gets more complex than that, you put on your Nikes and run. If you hear somebody preaching another gospel, you need to do this, do that, follow this, follow that. Those things are subsequent to the real gospel. You will never be righteous until you are found in the righteous one. You have no power over sin until you know the one who breaks the power of sin. Our whole existence as the church hangs on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone push you away from that. It's not about anything else at its core. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent of the apostles. And he begins what one could say is a little bit of bragging, and I'll get to the reason why in a bit. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. Where does knowledge and wisdom come from? It comes from the Lord. Can he use books? Oh, yes, he can. Can he use the internet? Yes, he can. Can he use other people to teach? Yes, he can. But all knowledge and wisdom comes from the Lord. And so it is not about what degree, what shingle you have hanging on your wall that does not a spiritual person make. What makes a person who is useful to the Lord is someone who's been in contact with Jesus. We have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. In order to paint the case that he's making here, he begins by reminding us that a mature, a godly leader, someone who really loves the Lord, someone who cares about the sheep, who desires to lead in this gospel living and in this gospel finding, that person is willing to give anything and everything for the flock. Did I commit, verse 7 says, in humbling my, a sin and humbling myself? that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. Now this is one of the strangest passages in the New Testament. Basically Paul is saying, did I do something wrong by not taking a salary from you? Was there, was there, did I fail somewhere in that you didn't pay me for the ministry? Pastors are not hirelings. This may shock some of you. I don't work for you. I work for God. I didn't get hired. I got called. And if I'm not called, you don't want to hear a thing I have to say. If I'm not filled with the Spirit, don't listen. If there isn't something coming from the Lord, please go somewhere else. Let me be really clear. Paul is making a case every pastor should recognize apart from God, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. And so he's saying to us, look, it isn't whether I get paid or don't get paid. In fact, he goes on in verse 8, strange statement, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. 
Now, he's not literally saying he robbed them, but what he's saying is, in effect, other people paid me so I could be here with you. We're actually going to do that in Uganda. The people in Uganda are not going to pay a thing for anything we do, period. That's all coming from you. So if you want to look at it that way, it's a very similar situation. Y'all got robbed. (laughs) Amen? We're not, Pastor Pat and Dennis show up while we brought a bill for the trip. (laughs) Man, you guys are way behind on your payments right here. No, the gospel is free. It's supposed to be freely given. And there are churches that can send and there are churches that desperately need to receive. It's up to the Lord to point us in that direction. But we as leaders ought to be willing to pay the price, whatever it is. Look, I'm a father. Connie is a mother. You know, we've never sat down and written out a bill for our kids. Brought you into the world, that was a little expensive. <laughs> those meals for those first 20 years. <laughs> Baby. You understand what I'm saying? You don't put burdens on your children. You don't wait that, man, you know how much the house cost? If you're doing that as a parent, stop it. Look, he's saying, look, as a good father takes care of his children, he doesn't care what it costs. Those are my boys. I don't care what it costs in that sense. I'll pay it. I love my children because I love my children. How much more do you think your heavenly father loves you? And how much more do you think he wants to send his emissaries to emulate how he feels about the people for whom Christ died. He's saying, look, don't put a burden on the people you're trying to deliver the gospel to. That's why it drives me nuts when I hear about churches that, well, this is our first offering today. This is our second offering. This is the third offering because the second offering, we counted that one already. And uh, you, you guys aren't in the spirit because there's not enough cash in there. That is a burden. That is a weight. It has no business in God's church. Any church that does that needs to shut its doors and open up a Burger King instead. You see, we have to remember that we are in the Lord's business in that sense. I represent the Lord. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. He says, look, I I live my life in such a way that no one would ever blame God for the way I live my life. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied it. You guys didn't supply it, they did. In everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. He says, look, I'll pay any price. I'll I'll do whatever it takes. We need more pastors in our day and time that are willing to do what it takes. You know, ministry is not the easiest thing in the world. It's not the easiest way to earn a living if you want to look at it that way. There are easier ways. But it's not about that. It's about are you willing to pay whatever the price is? And for some, that is 
horrific. My brother Chet, who's going to be here in a, in a couple of weeks, is in the Bahamas right now. His cousin Matthew is a pastor on Grand Bahama. They don't have a church anymore. They don't have homes anymore. They don't even have their boats anymore that they used to earn a living with. They have nothing. It's gone. There's probably more than a thousand people that are still missing. The church is supposed to rally around the church. And by the way, we are going to rally around the church. We're waiting for word right now. And as soon as we get it, we are going to join in that relief effort. But we're not like, well, you know, can we have a plaque on the side of the building when it gets rebuilt? Because we want to know, you know, we want somebody to see how great we were. No, you just pay the price. Whatever it is, we should do it. Because it's right. That's what people who hear from the Lord do. We are the lifters of burdens. And as the truth of Christ was in me, no one shall stop me from boasting in the regions of Acacia. Why? Because I do not love you? Oh, God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. He said, look, the only way to fight off the lie is to tell the truth. The only way that you know falsehood is by handling the real thing. And so Paul says, look, I'm going to show you what the real thing, what a really godly man does. This is what a leader does. The Corinthians were benefiting from him. And I've seen both sides of, of this particular coin too frequently and too often. I've seen pastors that should in fear and trembling and shame give back millions of dollars back to some ministry on the face of the earth because they have net worths in the tens of millions of dollars personally. No pastor should ever have that kind of net worth ever i don't care if you disagree with me or not no pastor should have that kind of net worth why because you're never going to need it it's unconscionable you will never need 25 30 million dollars period you won't need it that's not saying a pastor isn't worthy of his hire. That's not saying a pastor can't have a decent salary. That's not saying a pastor can't have a home. None of those things. What I'm saying is the excess that we see in our world has no business in the church. None. None. So on one hand, the people like Benny Hinn, and I'll just name them, <laughs> Creflo Dollar, Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer. You ought to be writing some checks tonight. Give it back. Send it someplace. Amen? They don't need 15,000 square foot mansions, they don't need private jets, they darn sure don't need yachts. 
And they absolutely don't need $2,000 suits. The ones at Hollywood Suit Outlet on Hawthorne work just fine. (laughs) Hallelujah. Imagine what that money would do for the poor. But you know, there's another side to this. I've seen churches that don't take care of their pastor. It goes both ways. And it shouldn't be that way either. I know personally men that have struggled in the ministry for decades that have no idea where their next meal is coming from. And it's not because the church doesn't have money. It's because there's a board sitting there going, well, until you do what we want you to do, we're just going to make it squeak a little bit in your pocket. That is also not of the Lord. And so Paul put it very succinctly. He said, I don't want anything from anybody and I don't want to be a burden to anybody. And so the church in Macedonia took care of what you guys couldn't pay so that we could just get this thing done and preach the gospel. Godly leaders see those things and are willing to say something. They're willing to do something. I read a story when Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy, was coming back from a hunting expedition in Africa. And on that particular ship was also a missionary couple. And the husband, who was a pastor, got a little bit upset. And Teddy Roosevelt's up on the deck. And people, of course, are wanting to take pictures with him. And he's in his usual rough rider attire with his hat and, you know, his those goofy balloon pants that he wears that made him look like MC Hammer before there was an MC Hammer. I think he said, you can't touch this. (laughs) But that evening in their motel room, the husband began to talk to the wife and the husband was pretty bitter. He said, it isn't fair. He said, Teddy Roosevelt goes and kills innocent animals and comes back and he's treated like a like a king, and we, we come back after 20 years of faithful service in the mission field. There's not even anybody here to meet us. And the wife said this, Honey, that's because we're not home yet. Amen? Paul understood that. Paul understood that. Not home yet. This earth isn't our home. We're working on getting there. And one day, couldn't be a day too soon, the trumpet's going to sound. Can't wait. I've been praying recently for the rapture like I haven't prayed in a very long time. It's like, Lord, the only answer is you. Would you save everyone who's going to be saved and let's get off this rock? Pretty simple prayer for a simple guy with a simple gospel. Amen? We need to be also jealous over the flock. A mature, godly leader, someone who really cares about what God cares about, cares about 
the bride, amen? Sometimes I get asked the strangest questions. Why 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 do you talk about things that aren't right from the pulpit? Well, because it's my job. Why do, you, why do you say things like about other religions? I asked, had a guy last week who's going, man, you know, you were just on a roll and you were like, well, I was telling the truth. No, I actually care that you guys understand that there's a difference between a Buddhist and a Christian. That there's a difference between a Mormon and a real Bible-believing, Christ-following Christian that you know that you're not saved by religion, that's important to me because I am jealous over the flock of God because God is jealous over his flock. I care about what you think about God. I have to do that. Notice what he says, verse 13. For such are false apostles. He's not pulling any punches here deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. When I see Kenneth Copeland boarding his Falcon jet, that is a deceiver, that is a false Christ. That's what I see. Because everything's about money. I'm just telling you like it is. Love me, hate me, I don't care. I really don't. Because it's the truth. People who are in the ministry for money, exactly as Paul said here, need to be called out. It's shameful. It's wrong. They shouldn't be doing it. They shouldn't be in ministry. Well, they look like apostles of Christ. Carry a big Bible. Make a lot of people feel guilty. They get widows and orphans to cough up their last buck on a credit card and the Lord's going to have the last word. I'm just saying it like it is. Paul was jealous for the flock of God. I'm jealous for the flock of God. Don't be deceived. There is no such thing as a seed gift. Period. Some knucklehead calls you up and says you need to ramp up your credit card limit so that you can send them a thousand bucks. Tell them, no thank you, why don't you send me some of your thousands of bucks? Because I ain't got it and you do. Don't believe it. Notice what it says, and no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. The devil knows exactly which suit rack to pull his suit off of. The devil knows exactly how to dress himself. Knows exactly what to say to that person who's hurting. Promising them false hope. Pastor Chuck used to tell the story. He had a guy came into his office one time. And he brought with him a suitcase of magic wallets. He said, you know, you ought to try this. You just go out there and tell people these are magic wallets. You put $100 in it, God will put another 1000 in it. Chuck said, I can save you the trouble. 
I'm going to put you in the suitcase and dump the magic wallets out. We're going to throw you in the ocean. He was like cheesed. The guy looked great, you know, nice suit. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. There are false teachers who parade themselves as pastors. Don't be caught off guard. Whose end will be according to their works. Read the final chapter of the book of Revelation if you want to know what that means. And all those who are deceivers and liars shall have no part in the kingdom of God. You see, a true lover is never envious but has the right to be jealous. Guy's just telling you, you come after my wife, you and I are going to have words and they're not going to be fun. Why? Because I love my wife. She's mine. And I don't say that in a possessive way. I say that the Lord has given me someone to cherish and keep for the rest of my days. She's taken. God feels the same way about the bride of Christ. We are taken. We're taken and he has a godly jealousy for us. He's not willing to share us with anyone. We don't get to go following after the next thing. Uh, we're going to have a marriage one day. Did you know that? Call the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bridegroom's going to peek his head through the clouds, and we who are alive and remain are going caught to be caught up in the air. Amen? And we're off to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're betrothed in that sense. And because God is jealous for his church, we who lead the church ought to be jealous for the church. When we see people coming with false doctrine... You know, you can be dumb as a brick all day long, but you come to this church with false doctrine, we're going to have some folks talk with you. You come spreading lies and deceit and discord, we are going to have some talks with you. And the first one's going to be nice and gracious and kind, and they're going to go up from there, depending on your response. A real leader is zealous and jealous for the church. You see, I I don't want to see you going down a false road. Satan has now and always will work by dividing, defiling, and then destroying. That's how he works. He divides true lies. He, he, He then will defile you by getting you to do the things that you shouldn't do. And then finally, his hope, his goal is to destroy you. That's how he works. In that sense, he wants to divide and conquer. So he sends people who look like they have the next new thing. And they walk into the church. Oh, hi, brother. Hi, sister. And the next thing you know, they're wandering around sowing discord amongst the brothers and sisters. That's you. Be careful. Because we see you. Because we're watching And if we find you, there's a reason a shepherd keeps a crook. And it ain't to talk with. It's so you can get walking with it. 
Paul warned of the devices that Satan uses. He has a bunch of ways to attack us. In chapter 4, we learned that he likes to blind the minds of unbelievers. He gets them caught up in some thing, some sin, to where they become completely blinded. They don't even see it. When you talk to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, and they're in the midst of a sinful behavioral issue, they don't have any idea. It's even sin, usually. They're blind to it. A second thing he does is he beguiles. He, he puts out there, as you can see here, just some other gospel. It's like, oh, that looks good. I don't have to repent of my sin in that religion. I don't have to change my ways. I can just keep doing what I'm doing, and God's okay. Can I tell you that there are churches today that are promoting this very gospel? They're wandering around telling you that you can marry a man if you're a man, and God's going to be okay with it. It's beguiling. People are going, well, you know, I can go to that church and I can be a homosexual and they don't really care. There are churches that don't deal with sin. Somebody comes in, she's like, well, keep your sin and have us too. Nowhere in scripture are we as the church ever taught that there is salvation without repentance. Did you know that? You can't turn from something and not turn from it. Jesus didn't say to the woman at the well, go and sin some more. Amen? He said, go and sin no more, nada, zero zip. Null set, void. Uh Uh-uh, don't do it. You see, there are people who will beguile the minds of believers. People who love the Lord. You see, unbelievers, all you gotta do is blind them. But to believers, you got to try and fool them. And then here's what happens to those of you that are walking with the Lord. You get the buffeting. We'll see that in chapter 12. You're going to get beat up. And we're going to see that as we finish up this chapter. You're, you're going to get whooped on. You're going you're to take a beat down every once in a while because you love the Lord. Did you know that? Maybe a shock to some of you, but get ready. Because y'all going to get jumped. Satan's going to jump you into the gang. He's going to try to. You're going to be walking down the street, just kind of minding your own business, and here he comes. And see, you're going to have to make a choice to either stand like Daniel does, or you're going to join the gang. You're going to say, I don't want to fight like this. It's too much. Look, Satan is a liar. Yes, he's crafty. Yes, he uses false teachers. Yes, he uses false ways. But all he's got to do is present a crafty enough case that you get started the wrong direction and pretty soon you can find yourself where you said you would never go. So be really careful. It starts with drifting. It moves to defying. And ultimately, it might lead you to defying the Lord. Satan just imitates. It's all he does. He copies. He sends counterfeits into the world. Don't fall for them. When you, when you trust Christ, guess what you get as part of that deal? Internal guidance called the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit speaking to you going, 
Mm, you know, that's not cool. It's not okay with the Lord. Need to change my ways. That's going to happen. You're going to be doing your thing, and the Lord's going to say, this ain't your thing anymore. You need to be going the other way. You need to roll that up. That's not part of your life anymore. And then conversely, as soon as that happens, he's going to say, hey, you need to go this way. This is the way of righteousness. That's what happens when the Spirit is inside of you. The preachers of the false gospel, they're perfectly okay if you never understand that you're a sinner. They're perfectly okay if you don't know what righteousness is. You just feel good about everything. If I ever get to the place where you come in and you feel good after every message, shoot me. (laughs) My job is not to make you feel good. My job is to tell you the truth. And sometimes the truth's going to hurt. Does me. You know, the Lord calls out my stuff. It's like, ow. Like, could you lighten? No, I'm not lightening up. You're a pastor. It's tragic. When people who love the Lord get swayed by fanciful speech and things that feel good. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of it is the way of death. There's all kinds of things that seem like they're good with the world. Amen? It's the way the world works. In case you haven't seen any TV lately, it's not getting better. When we start using sex to sell candy bars, there's something seriously rotten in Denmark. Amen? I don't know what the Danes did to deserve that, but... You know what I'm saying? It's like, what? Paul gives us a third evidence of godly leadership. And it's what he was willing to suffer for them. And this is why I knew we could finish this passage. Because this is the longest discourse found in the entirety of the Bible where somebody actually talks about what they've gone through personally for someone else. And there's a reason Paul does it. He's making a case, and while you could say it is a little bit braggadocious, he's trying to let them know, it's like, look, what else could I do to prove to you that I'm the genuine article? Verse 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I may also boast a little. He says, look, I don't want to do this. But let me tell you how it really is, what really has gone on. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord. Look, God would never, Jesus would never say these things to you. He he wouldn't do it. But I'm a man, your people Let me express to you in human terms, in a way that you can understand, what this has cost me personally. But as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. He's saying, look, you've listened to all these false teachers 
about their miracles and about their signs and about their wonders and about all the great things that they're going to do for you. You've sat down with them. You've invited them into your home. And by the way, read the second letter that John wrote in chapter five and ask yourself the simple question, is that a wise thing? John said, don't even let them into your house. Don't even say goodbye to them. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you put up with fools gladly. It's kind of a sharp tongue thing there, I think. Since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage. If one devours you. If one takes from you. If one exalts himself. If one strikes you in the face. He says if knuckleheads come preaching another gospel. They can punch you in the face and you sit there and listen to them. To our shame. I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. He's saying, look, these guys that you've been listening to that that are trying to mix Judaism, the law, and grace, I'm actually Jewish. I'm an Israelite. I'm of the lineage of Father Abraham. Are they ministers of Christ? That's the question. I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. He's going to list 26 individual things in which he has suffered. More abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. That means near-death experiences, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That's, five, that's 39 stripes. That was the legal maximum. 40 was believed to kill anyone and everyone. He got it five times that he was brought to death's door from the lash. From the Jewish people, his countrymen. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and the night I've been in the deep. In other words, he treaded water in the open ocean for a day and a night. In journeys often, perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among the false brethren, in weariness, toil, sleeplessness, in hunger and thirst, Fastings often, cold and nakedness, and besides the other things. So he throws in a miscellaneous category. Besides the other things I don't want to mention right now. That come upon me daily. Why? In my deep concern for all the churches. Not not because of his own life being nearly forfeit, not because of the pain he went through, not because of his lack of sleep, not because he was nearly drowned, not because he was stoned, not because he was beaten, not because of any of these 26 named things, nor the things that were not named that he just simply calls other things. 
The reason I went through this stuff is my deep concern for the church. That is a pastor you want to follow. That's a pastor you want to follow. That's a pastor who's concerned about the right things. Now, I'm not suggesting that every pastor, and I, I myself have failed to meet this standard. I don't know a pastor that's ever met this standard. But I do know this. The chief concern of the Apostle Paul was not his own life. It was the church. It was the people he pastored. Who is weak? I'm not weak. Who's made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. He says, look, I, I watch what's going on. I'm infuriated by it. But if I must boast, I will boast in the things that concern my infirmity. He says, look, I'll, give you, I'll, I'll boast about something. I'm weak. I, I'm not much to look at. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. He says, look, what matters to me is you and that you know Jesus. In Damascus, the governor under Artris, the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. And he says, I cared so little about myself. You talk about humiliating that I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. It wasn't like I, I, I could tell you I fought my way out. I didn't grab a sword and slay half of the army on my way out the door. I, I was captured by a bunch of people. They stuck me in a basket that was for laundry and they put me out a window. I don't care what you think of me. But I know what God thinks of you. And what God thinks of you, I think of you. He says, I love you the way God loves you. I, I care for you, my concern. And that word concern means to, to pressure, to stress, or to have anxiety over. It, it, it means my, my deep concern. My overwhelming desire is for your well-being. You see, all these experiences he listed are external. But the thing that bothered Paul the most was the internal thing. It's like, Lord, these people. I have to tell you, when I first heard that Jared had taken his life, the first thing I thought about was all the people he had been ministering to. It's like, Lord, what about them? What, what are you going to do with their lives? That should be the concern of pastors. It's been well said, Henry Ward Beecher, among many others, we never know the love of parents until we become parents. Amen? When you become a parent, things change. You look at stuff differently. And Paul's saying, look, I, I'm going to boast a little bit. Paul would have agreed with John the Baptist. He, Jesus, must increase. I need to decrease. 
And, and Paul says, look, he, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Don't glory in me, glory in the Lord. But Paul says, look, I don't know what else to do to prove to you. I've gone through all these sufferings, external things. I've gone through these natural hardships. Look, I'll tell you, God bless you guys for flying to Africa. That stinks. That's a long trip. And we get to fly on planes, amen? 20 hours. Try getting on a boat. Then try walking across the the land of the Middle East. Paul's missionary journeys were not in planes. They weren't in trains. They weren't in automobiles. He was lucky he got to ride on a donkey or a camel or maybe there was a really big goat he could hop on. I don't know. But he was willing to undertake that journey no matter what the cost. And every one of those journeys, every time he was shipwrecked, you want to know how much of Paul's stuff Paul lost? A hundred percent. Paul traveled light. What he owned, he took with him. And every time he went into the ocean, so did all of his stuff. And so I'm not kidding when I, when I say we need to look at pastoral ministry in a way. Look, if I go into the sea, I'm willing to pay the price. If I get beat up, I'm willing to pay the price. If I get weary, pastors get weary. Pastors get those days too. But you can tell when one's walking with the Lord because those days don't define them. They get through them. They get over them. They get around them. They do something. The Lord is able. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us and we're able to just simply press on. That was Paul. Nothing stopped him. Nothing deterred him. You think the Judaizers were ever going to tell a story like this? No way. Because if their private jet didn't take them directly into the city, they weren't going. If they didn't get enough honorarium, they weren't coming. And I'm not going to name the person, but I I got a call about a month ago from a certain well-known national Bible teacher. And he was trying to fill his schedule. So his people called my people not knowing that I am my people. So my people, me, picked up my phone. (laughs) Pastor Jeff available? Uh, Yeah, he is. Well, can I talk to him? Well, what do you need? Well, we're looking to round out our schedule. We wanted to see if he wanted to have us. He didn't even know he was talking to me. And he said, well, we only require a $25,000 honorarium. And after I almost threw up in my mouth, <laughs> stopped choking a little bit, I said, well, I think we have that service covered. And he proceeded to try and tell me how big a bargain $25,000 was for 45 minutes. 
I took the three books I have in my library and they made their way to waste management. I can't see the Apostle Paul doing that. I know Pastor Chuck wouldn't do it. I will tell you a little story about Pastor Chuck. I never once, never once in all of my travels with him did I ever see him keep an honorarium check. 100% of the time that I was with him, he signed the back of it and put it in the tithe box in that church. That's a pastor that loves sheep. I'm not saying everybody should do that. And I'm not blaming anybody who doesn't. But I am saying shepherds care for sheep. And a shepherd that doesn't care for sheep shouldn't be your shepherd. Paul was a shepherd that cared for sheep. He was an amazing, godly leader. And I hope to be just a little bit like him. Would you stand and we'll pray together? Father, for those of us who have the privilege of pastoring this flock, Lord, we just recommit ourselves to you, to this amazing body, Lord, these beautiful saints. Lord, it's kind of crazy that you would call sheep to be shepherds, but you've called us who are sheep to also be shepherds under you. Lord, you're really the, the chief shepherd. We're maybe sheep dogs, I don't know. But God, we thank you for that privilege. I, I think of my family here in this church that serves. And Lord, I pray for those in every area of ministry in this church that we would be like the Apostle Paul willing to go anywhere at any time and pay any price. Lord, that you would use this place, use us for your glory, that there'd be one gospel and that gospel would be clear. That we would be concerned with the things that concern you. And we know your chief concern is simply your flock, your bride. And so give us hearts that are stirred to love your people. Lord, no matter what shape they're in, God, you're near to the broken. Would we be near to the broken? The downcast you don't cast out. Would we try and draw in the downcast? Would we lift up the arms of the weary? Help us to cause the the blind to be able to maybe see a little bit and the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. Father, we thank you for the privilege of using us as a church. And Lord, We're reminded so often that what we do here in the sanctuary is just a a little mirror of what's going on in heaven. And so we pray that your church would be filled with heavenly things. Anoint us for your purposes. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.